All right, uh, welcome to another lecture for the history section of Japanese 100. Uh, today's lecture is War, Co-Prosperity, Defeat. Uh, we won't really get all the way right up to defeat, but you'll be able to uh, pretty much see where we're going by the, by the time we get to the end of the lecture. Uh, you will also see that Co-Prosperity uh, is a little ironic given that Japan couldn't even prosper itself. Uh, as always, we will start off with a little bit of review from last time. So uh, in the last lecture, we looked at uh, developments in Japanese society in the 1930s, uh, starting with the murders and coup attempts uh, in a period which has been colorfully described as the period of government by assassination. Uh, next, we went on to talk about the transformation of the unofficial, undeclared conflict with China, uh, which really began in 1930 with the Manchurian incident, uh, all the way up to all-out war, uh, which really uh, begins from the summer, uh, specifically from July of 1937. And we talked about some of the effects that this had. Uh, this basically brought us right up to uh, the point where we could talk about uh, Pearl Harbor, in other words, the Japanese attack on the United States. Um, but I want to take a quick step back here uh, and think a little bit about some of the other uh, precursors, some of the other uh, events and factors that led up to Pearl Harbor. So uh, today we are going to start off with thinking about that. Uh, one last thing before we do. Um, I talked a lot in the last lecture uh, about the uh, effects of the global economic downturn, uh, rural poverty, famine, etc. Um, also, of course, the sort of climatic phenomena of uh, famines and typhoons um, on the course of uh, Japanese history in the 1930s. I also mentioned, I think it's controversial, so I want to come back to it, uh, the idea that terrorism works. Um, this whole, and this was in reference to the idea of uh, government by assassination. Um, what I mean is that, uh, you know, terrorism has an effect. Uh, it is not always successful, but it definitely has. It's not always successful on its own terms, right? But it always has uh, an effect. And I was thinking specifically of a quote uh, by a member of parliament uh, who said, quote, uh, when, when he was asked why he didn't join the fight against Japanese militarism, he said, quote, pistols are scary. Uh, anyway, so let's jump into the lecture. In addition to Japan's increasing international isolation after the Manchurian incident, the Lytton Commission port, uh, report, and Japan's shocking decision to leave the League of Nations, in the last lecture we took a look at the escalation of war with China, as I've said. Um, I should emphasize that uh, for both the public and for policymakers and military leaders, uh, the appeal of war was the same as it had been in Japan's earlier conflict with China and its sequel in Russia. In other words, uh, Peter Deuce is probably correct when he wrote that, in some senses, the war with China helped to reintegrate Japanese society, still scarred by the social divisions of the 1920s and the economic hardships of the early 1930s. So, in other words, when Japan goes to war, uh, all-out war, with China in the late 1930s, that actually, in the short run, has a sort of positive, palliative effect on uh, Japanese society, both 
uh, economically and socially. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later on in the lecture in more detail. Um, I want to uh, take a moment here to sort of get out of our chronology, though, uh, and recall that uh, or just sort of point out that Japan has quite a number of different names for these this sort of series of conflicts that it's involved in. Um, so, for example, the war with China, which began in 1937, uh, is often called the Second Sino-Japanese War in English. Um, it's only a, a part of a longer war, which in Japan is referred to primarily uh, by a couple of different names, the first of which is the 15-year war, or Jubonen Senso. Uh, and that really takes us back to the Manchurian incident, right? That's how you get 15 years is going 1931 to 1945. Um, this is also referred to as the Greater East Asia War, um, and that's a that's a, a a a name for the war that uh, justifies the war as one that Japan fought to liberate Asia from you know white Western oppression. Um, this is the rhetoric of the infamous Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, which is the subject of the second half of this lecture. Um, and that was just a preview established in summer of 1940. But in fact, it really had been, in, in a sense, de facto Japanese policy in Asia um, throughout the 1930s. So uh, there's, there's also the, uh, in addition to fighting this war in China um, and to some extent in Asia already in the 1930s, uh, there's Japan's calamitous war with the United States, which begins in December 1941 uh, with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, we're going to start off by looking at this war and sort of how we get to this war uh, and some of the consequences, uh, the so-called Pacific War between Tokyo and Washington. We're going to start with the question of how and why such an obviously lopsided conflict could have been chosen by Japan, the weaker party. Right. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, and right, I mean, as you probably know, there really was no way for Japan to win a war uh, with the United States. Here's an example of why the single American city of Pittsburgh uh, in my home state of Pennsylvania produced 40 times as much steel as Manchuria, even in the peak output year of 1943 for Manchuria. Right. So Japan has very few sort of natural resources in terms of uh, coal and iron. One of the reasons it takes Manchuria is for the resources. The, the great treasure trove of Manchuria produces one fortieth the amount of steel of a single American city, Pittsburgh. Uh, so we're also going to talk about uh, the war with America, uh, the way that it squandered and crushed um, any momentary social solidarity restored by the army's successes in China. Um, I've been uh, uh, at various points uh, in these lectures trying to point out that, uh, as Arihota put it, uh, many of the real or imagined constraints that Japan's leaders faced in 1941 when they made that decision um, had historical roots going back to Japan's opening of its doors to the wider, often hostile world in the second half of the 19th century. Simultaneously, uh, as Hota also points out, uh, this is no excuse for the stupidity, self-delusion, and cruelty that ensued. In other words, we can understand even if we do not condone. 
Keeping that in mind, let's get right into examining the political and diplomatic breakdowns that led to war between the U.S. and Japan. So, you'll recall that Japan had committed to the Anti-Comintern Pact in 1936, largely as a result of pressure by the army. Uh, the army hoped that an alliance with Hitler would serve as a kind of deterrent against Soviet and also uh, European and American interference in the pursuit of uh, the uh, gain of you know, territorial and resource gains of Japanese empire in Asia. Um, even after Hitler violated this agreement in 1939 and signed a non-aggression pact with Stalin, the continued military successes of the Nazis meant that the Third Reich was an attractive partner for the Imperial Japanese Army. Uh, and the colorful foreign minister, Matsuoka Yosuke, who uh, pressured the prime minister, Konoe, to join the tripartite pact with Germany and Italy in September 1940, uh, which committed each of them to assist one another with all political, economic, and military means when one of the other three contracting parties is attacked by a power at present not involved in the European war or in the Chinese-Japanese conflict, uh, in other words, the United States, uh, a fact that the Americans did not miss. Um, so the Japanese uh, got into this uh, uh, treaty, at which began by divvying up the future spoils of war, a little bit prematurely, as it turns out. Uh, so Article 1 and Article 2 specifically address this. Article 1, Japan recognizes and respects the leadership of Germany and Italy in establishment of a new order in Europe. Article 2, Germany and Italy recognize and respect the leadership of Japan in the establishment of a new order in Greater East Asia. Uh, and as I said, Matsuoka Yosuke was a big factor in, uh, in his role as, as foreign minister uh, in making this happen. He had been a powerful advocate for the alliance with Hitler and Mussolini, arguing that this kind of mutual aid pact with the Nazis and with the fascists would serve as a restraining force on the United States while Japan moved south. Uh, in other words, while it uh, expanded and also secured uh, resources and territories in South and Southeast Asia, which would allow Japan to be independent. In other words, to, to create, carve out a kind of autarky or resource independence. Matsuoka had insisted that only by taking a strong stand could a war with the United States be averted. For a number of reasons, in, in contrast to this, the Navy had long opposed an alliance with Germany and Italy. Chief among these, and we don't have to go through all the details, but chief among these was the well-justified fear that Japan could not win a naval war with the superpowers of the sea, the British and the Americans, uh, especially without its own petroleum reserves. It's also generally true that the naval brass and its officer corps was more cosmopolitan, more internationalist in its outlook uh, than their counterparts in the army were. In any case, the Navy eventually consented to the Axis Pact in the autumn of 1940, uh, only with assurances that Japan would not automatically be required to enter a future German-American war. Uh, they also got promises of substantial budget increases, which may have sweetened the deal. So the Tripartite Pact was signed on September 27, 1940. That was a day after the United States embargoed scrap metal shipments to Japan and also loaned $50 million to Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese leader, or the, well, the leader of the nationalists or Guomindang in China. Uh, this was in retaliation for Japan's occupation of northern Indochina, what's now Vietnam. 
When Paris fell to the Nazis early that summer, uh, Japan's, the, the, the hawks in Tokyo, perceived an opportunity to secure additional critical resources to complete a stable and sustainable economic bloc. In other words, that uh, cherished goal of autonomy. The Nazi-installed Vichy government of occupied France administered the colonies as well. So this meant that Japan could negotiate a deal to station troops in Vietnam, uh, in northern French Indochina, as well as to build and use airfields in the territory. So by doing so, Japan hoped to, attain, to obtain uh, rubbers, metal, uh, rubber, metals, petroleum, and other natural resources from Indochina first, then Dutch-controlled Indonesia, uh, and then also to sort of isolate and strangle the nationalists in China. Uh, and this would be uh, the, the point here would be that J if Japan had control of those resources, uh, Chiang Kai-shek would not. He would also not lose a major uh, transport route for those same um, uh, resources. So prior to Japanese occupation of the peninsula, Tokyo had sharply criticized Paris for allowing supplies to be sent through its colonial possession to support the nationalist war effort against China um, uh, excuse me, against Japan in China, blaming this for its own failure to destroy the Kuomintang regime and bring an end to the war. Britain reopened the Burma Road into China anyway, um, and that remained a major conduit for aid to the nationalists until the Japanese shut it down again in 1942. In any case, Japan's diplomatic and military offensives continued. Matsuoka negotiated a neutrality pact with the Soviets in April of 1941, which he considered to be a major accomplishment, because it would allow Japan to move south and take control of those resources in southern Indochina and Indonesia that it deeply desired, without fears of reprisal from Stalin. Two months later, Hitler abandoned his own neutrality pact with the Soviets and invaded the Soviet Union. Matsuoka reversed course and urged that Japan scrap the deal which he had promoted and negotiated himself, um, and to join the Nazis in the assault on Russia. He was overruled, and the government uh, decided to proceed with the southern advance. Uh, Japan also had been uh, negotiating with the Dutch over access to Indonesian resources and materials since September 1940, but those talks were getting nowhere. Uh, and in part because of this, uh, so these sort of failures of diplomacy, hardliners in the military had been arguing for some time for a preemptive strike against the U.S. to strengthen Japan's negotiating position by damaging American material and spiritual resources. The breakdown of talks with the Dutch enforced support in leadership circles for the view that diplomacy would not break what they called the A, B, C, D encirclement of America, Britain, China, and the Dutch, uh, clever, uh, and that such a bold military move might be necessary in order for Japan to achieve a sustainable autonomy. In late July 1941, a month after talks with the Dutch were finally broken off, uh, the Japanese government extracted permission from the Vichy collaborators to occupy now the entire Indochina Peninsula, essentially becoming its new colonial masters, replacing the French. This very aggressive move, though it was portrayed by the Japanese as a peaceful transition, was met with harsh sanctions from the international community. And it didn't help that a few rogue officers fired on local French forces refusing to evacuate, uh, further damaging Japan's international reputation. Washington led an international embargo of exports to Japan other than cotton and food. 
Roosevelt also froze Japanese assets in the U.S. Uh, he, the uh, Dutch East Indies, uh, Britain, Canada, New Zealand, and the American-controlled Philippines followed suit, also freezing Japanese assets. Washington additionally stepped up the supply of below-cost military supplies to the Guomindang, which further agitated the Japanese. Japan was dependent on the U.S. for numerous civilian and military commodities and materials, so these embargoes really hurt. The most important of these was oil, which the Navy burned at a rate of about 12,000 tons per day, according to some estimates. Uh, that at least 400 tons per hour by the reckoning of one admiral in the fall of 1941. The same admiral observed, quote, if our petroleum supplies were cut off, we would lose our stock in two years. If a war broke out, we could use it all up in 18 months. So this reinforced for many Japanese decision makers the sense that for the empire to re remain independent and to remain an independent world power, it would need to secure its own sources of oil and other critical materials. The international embargo threatened the Japanese war machine with starvation, cutting off access to strategically important materials. I've already mentioned petroleum and scrap metals. Uh, the export ban led by Washington and London also drained the overall lifeblood of the economy, since nearly two-thirds of Japanese imports came from Anglo-American-controlled lands, not just from uh, Britain and America, but from their respective empires or territories or allies or whatever. Uh, so the water was being drained out of the bath and the Navy was about to be grounded. Or, as Marius Jansen put it, it was clear that time favored the United States, which was gearing up for war, and not Japan, which was searching frantically for resources that its war machine required. Now placed in an even more precarious position then, Japan continued to pursue negotiations with the Americans in Washington but they were handicapped by artificial deadlines put in place by Tokyo. So what you have here is a split between the uh, political leadership in Tokyo and the diplomatic core of Japanese in Washington. So there, there's a, a, a breakdown of communication uh, e even within the Japanese uh, diplomatic community. At the same July 2nd conference that authorized the occupation of southern Indochina, the Konoe administration, in other words, the Japanese government, adopted a resolution to finish the war in China and advance southward to complete the construction of an autonomous Greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. Uh, and they added to this the ominous declaration that Japan would not shrink from war with the Anglo-American powers. It read, quote, the empire shall not flinch from war with Britain and the United States. This was understood by the conference attendees uh, to be uh, an extreme formulation, right? So they were all uh, uh, aware that the Navy initially, uh, and also some important politicians, basically opposed this idea. Um, and that in reality, Japan should avoid war with Britain and the United States if at all possible. Nevertheless, this strong language was adopted. Whether this was realistic or not was not uh, or not was in serious doubt, even among conference participants. But at least at this point, the government maintained its resolve to pursue diplomatic options. Even if there is no hope, Tojo Hideki said, we should pursue peace until the very end. On the one hand, fleet commanders, in other words, in the Navy, were dumbfounded when the Navy minister informed them after the fact of this extraordinary decision that had been made in the emperor's presence. And that extraordinary decision is to say the empire shall not flinch from war with Britain and the United States. If you say that in front of the emperor, you're kind of stuck with that position. 
the fleet commanders recognized that, the, that Japan had committed to a dangerous path, and on the whole, the Navy supported the continuation of diplomatic efforts. On the other, even some moderates in the Navy were increasingly convinced that Japan would need to take radical action to keep the fleets chugging along. The Navy needed access to the oil fields of the Dutch East Indies, uh, modern Indonesia, uh, but any aggression would undoubtedly result in war. Naval officers who had previously advocated a peaceful diplomatic solution began talking of war, even though few were confident that Japan could win. Despite continued diplomatic overtures in August, by September, as Mikisohane noted with a delicious touch of irony, confrontation between the two nations now seemed inevitable, because each side believed it had to stand firm in order to avoid war. For a combination of principled and self-serving reasons, the United States refused to allow Japan to run free in Asia, especially in China and resource-rich Southeast Asia. Perhaps most importantly, and more fundamentally, because of Tokyo's dubious track record of keeping its promises, the Americans were increasingly unwilling to even meet with Japanese representatives, uh, including Prime Minister uh, Konoe, who uh, proposed to meet Roosevelt in Alaska for direct talks. Uh, they refused to meet with the Japanese without some prior guarantees, at least. These were, of course, never forthcoming, uh, because in contrast, Japanese leadership was paralyzed by a toxic mix of pride, greed, and self-delusion, unable to concede even minor points in order to deviate from what most, outside the army at least, realized was an unwinnable war. As much as it might have been a threat to national survival, retreat from Southeast Asia and China would have been personal political suicide for many at the top levels of political and military life. Over the next year, no one in a position to stop the madness stepped forward with the courage to do so. Instead, war preparations moved ahead. Worse yet, the artificial timeline, which I mentioned earlier, uh, was imposed as the result of a September 3rd conference. In addition to affirming the resolve not to shrink from war with the Anglo-American powers, uh, cabinet and armed forces excuse me cabinet and armed forces representatives agreed that if the United States had not met Japan's demands regarding the empire's rights and interests in Asia by the beginning of October, Japan would open hostilities against the U.S., Britain, and the Dutch, transforming the ongoing conflict in China into a full-scale anti-ABCD encirclement war. Ultimately, none of these men could claim that there was any rational justification for harboring even a shred of hope that Japan could defeat the U.S. in a war. As Erihota pointed out, Japan's cabinet planning board, the CPB, had reported that, quote, the United States produced more than 500 times as much petroleum, 12 times as much pig iron, 9 times as much steel ingot and copper, and 7 times as much aluminum as Japan, including other areas of production, such as coal, mercury, zinc, and lead, the average industrial output of the United States was thought to be more than 20, 74 times that of Japan. And in late August 1941, the Total War Research Institute, which was uh, the Japanese equivalent to the Imperial Defense College in Britain, reported after six weeks of research and simulations that it had reached the unequivocal conclusion that, given factors including uh, Japan's industrial capacity, which was only about one-twentieth of the United States's, should Japan go to war with the United States and its allies, Japan would necessarily lose. Tojo Hideki, who was then Minister of War and soon to also become Prime Minister, went pale. 
Moreover, at the September 6th Imperial Conference, in a dramatic break from precedent, the emperor himself directed sharp criticism against his own commanders for their mishandling of the war in China. He strongly implied that their predictions of victory over the U.S. or the negotiation of a favorable settlement from a position of strength after completing an autonomous political and economic Greater East Asia bloc were untrustworthy. Additionally, Hirohito had repeated his personal preference for a peaceful diplomatic conclusion to tensions between Japan and the U.S. He even complained separately to his Prime Minister Konoe that he resented being kept in the dark so long while his country had been prioritizing mobilization for war over the continuation of peace. Despite all this, the conference adopted a, quote, outline for the execution of national policy, which not only affirmed the July decision not to shrink from war, but added the October deadline. Given that war with the U.S. was intended as mostly a bargaining chip, a ploy to strengthen Japan's hands against the Americans, it's probably true that this resolution was seen by many of the hardliners in the army and moderates in the navy as one step in sort of haggling or bargaining with Roosevelt. Uh, they believed that the U.S. president would be uh, negotiated down to some compromise that would allow both sides to save face. But when Washington stood firm, Tokyo did the same, much to its detriment. This was a game of high-stakes chicken. It was irresponsible political brinksmanship of the worst kind. Several proposals were bandied back and forth between Tokyo and Washington. One set of Japanese demands, based on the outline ratified in September, would have required American and British non-interference in the Japanese war with China, including aid along the Burma Road. It would also have included no American or British bases in Thailand, the East Indies, China, or Eastern Russia. Also, recognition of Japan's special position in Indochina, and the restoration of trade to supply the empire with its much-needed resources and commodities. In return for this, Japan promised not to interfere in the Philippines, to maintain its truce with Stalin, not to automatically invoke the tripartite pact in case America joined the war, and also not to use Indochina as a staging base for imperialist war, except against China. Again, at least up to this point, with the exception of some hardliners in the army who were itching to mix it up with the Americans, a good portion of the high command in Tokyo seems to have considered the tough language of Japanese proposals as nothing more than that. But to the U.S., this position was a non-starter. Tojo formed a cabinet on October 18th after Konoe resigned. This resulted in an unprecedented concentration of power, with Tojo Hideki controlling politics, the military, and the police, among other things, because he served simultaneously as army, home, and prime minister. It also allowed Hirohito, the emperor, an excuse to instruct the new administration to move the deadline for a negotiated settlement with the U.S. back to late November. With this new emperor-sanctioned timeline, Japan continued at least the appearance of negotiations. Tokyo offered Washington Plan A and Plan B, each with some concessions. In Plan A, Japan offered some troop withdrawals and a return of free trade in China, in other words, the sort of return to the open-door policy. This would be contingent on the restoration of free trade globally, but it avoided conceding to American demands that Japan leave the Axis. Plan A was rejected out of hand. Now, Plan B was clearly the Japanese preference. From the American viewpoint, it was also a non-starter. Plan B proposed mutual asset unfreezing, 
and the cessation to military expansion in the South Pacific by both powers. Japan offered to draw down troops from southern Indochina immediately and from northern Indochina when peace in the region was achieved. In other words, when Japan subjugated China. On the other hand, Tokyo also demanded that it be allowed to keep troops in China until 1955 while it settled matters there and that U.S.-Japan trade be restored to pre-treaty levels or pre-treaty abrogation levels, in other words, while the treaty was in effect. In order to avoid a war with Japan, the American administration under Roosevelt had previously put forward at least one remarkably conciliatory offer, but now that the hawkish Japanese position was on the table, and now that Washington, having already broken Japan's diplomatic encryption and uh, being aware of the warmongering in the press and by politicians like Tojo, uh, Washington was certain that Tokyo was preparing for further military aggression in Indochina, at the very least. So Roosevelt put his foot down. The counter-proposal sent to the Japanese is known as the Hull Note, named after Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Seen by many as an ultimatum, it's best known for the four principles for a peaceful resolution of tensions, which were enunciated in it. 1. Respect for the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of each and all nations. 2. Support for the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. 3. Support of the principle of equality, including equality of commercial opportunity. 4. Non-disturbance of the status quo in the Pacific, except as the status quo may be altered by peaceful means. Days later, Japan made the final decision to go to war. As Marius Jansen wrote, Japan had worked its way into a corner, and Japanese leaders were determined that war and possible defeat were preferable to accepting the role of a second-class power. It made no difference that they had worked themselves into this problem. Retreat would be weakness, and that was unthinkable. Japan's decision for war was made with forebodings of possible destruction, but was justified on grounds that acquiescence to the American requirements for trade would undo the efforts of generations who had pursued the dreams of national greatness. It appears that the Americans were aware of at least the exceedingly high likelihood of a Japanese attack. After all, Japanese diplomatic intercepts had already informed Roosevelt on November 22nd that Tokyo would proceed down the path to war automatically if no modus vivendi or broader settlement could be hammered out. And Roosevelt's Secretary of War, Henry Simpson, recorded in his diary that the central question at the meeting was how to maneuver the Japanese into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Some have argued that Stimson mischaracterized Roosevelt, questioning the accuracy of this diary. But in any case, Roosevelt considered the threat of Japanese attack to be credible, uh, but may have underestimated the power that that first shot would, would bring. And that was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, it is infamous, as Roosevelt predicted it would become. One reason for this is the controversy around whether it was actually intended to be a sneak attack. Uh, I want to say three things very quickly on this before moving on. Uh, it's an issue that some people are very concerned and excited about. Uh, first, as noted, the Americans knew that some kind of Japanese offensive was coming. If they didn't know when, where, or how, they still know, knew it was coming. Second, probably more importantly, Tokyo did actually transmit a de facto declaration of war um, it explicitly broke off negotiations, but the intent would have been clear. Uh, and it was supposed to be delivered uh, before bombers began streaming into uh, the bay in, uh, in, in Hawaii. 
Uh, it was delayed by incompetence rather than duplicity, the intent to deceive, uh, because the Sunday morning skeleton staff at the Japanese embassy failed to decode, type, and deliver the message in time to the Secretary of State. Finally, as Jansen has noted somewhat sardonically, in 1905 much of the Western world, and particularly the British press, had applauded the Japanese surprise strike on the Russian Pacific fleet at Port Arthur as a masterstroke in courage and execution. In 1941, the reaction was sharply different. Uh, in other words, Jansen is pointing out that when the Japanese pulled a massive, destructive uh, a sneak attack on the Russians in 1945, uh, 1905, uh, everybody cheered and said, oh, how clever, how wonderful. And then in 1941, they attacked the Americans pretty much the same way, maybe even less of a sneak attack, and nobody was cheering. In any case, Pearl Harbor was, like the Blitzkrieg in Europe, a terrifyingly successful short-term strategy that didn't produce long-term victories. The Nazi Blitzkrieg, which, uh, as some of you may be aware, was fueled by heavy doses of methamphetamines, uh, which is how the tank drivers were able to keep their inhumanly long, inhumanly fearless ships, shifts, uh, which befuddled Allied war planners and officers on the ground. Uh, that Blitzkrieg ran roughshod over much of Europe before it stalled out. Japan, too, experienced an explosive flurry of early successes, taking the Malay Peninsula, uh, including Singapore, uh, the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, Burma, and a number of smaller South Pacific islands in the first five months or so. In fact, Japan conquered the peninsula of Malay in 70 days, and Singapore, supposedly impregnable and the symbol of British supremacy in Asia, fell in just seven. Within a few more months, Japan drove out the Western colonialist powers from the entire region. Um, and if you're interested, uh, you should look at how Japan uh, defeated Singapore. It's really an extraordinary story and it involves bicycles. Things quickly turned sour, though, in 1942. The architect of the Pearl Harbor attack was Admiral Yamamoto Isoroku, a man who had studied at Harvard and served as naval attaché in Washington. He understood the U.S. far better than all but a tiny handful of, ex of his contemporaries, and he had a keen sense of American wealth, technological prowess, and what might be called national character or culture. He reportedly warned Konoe that in the first six to 12 months of a war with the United States and Great Britain, I will run wild and win victory upon victory. But then, if the war continues after that, I have no expectation of success. As it happened, this quote was entirely too prophetic for Japanese tastes. Almost exactly a half a year later, Japan suffered a massive setback at the Battle of Midway in June 1942. Japan lost four aircraft carriers, the core of its fleet. By this time, Japan had grown to be a massive, sprawling, ill-conceived patchwork uh, maritime empire which stretched over hundreds of thousands of miles of ocean, overextended and poorly connected. 
Japan had hoped to consolidate East and Southeast Asia into a single political and economic bloc. Naval supremacy was an absolutely necessary condition for the survival of the Japanese Empire in this form, and it was lost almost immediately. After Midway, Allied forces basically ignored the Japanese army in China, Indochina, and Indonesia, instead focusing on strangling the empire to death with submarine and air attacks on the merchant fleet. This meant that Japan never had the opportunity to really develop and utilize the resources it had been seeking with its southern advance. The consequences were predictably devastating. Take food, for example, uh, and we're taking it as an example because it's my research topic, but it's a good one here. In the earlier discussion on the run-up to war, I focused on resources like petroleum, but to another way of thinking at least, no resource is more critical than food. Food is a weapon of war, as the authors of A History of Japanese Diet and National Food Management uh, wrote. For Japan, however, it was a weapon in dangerously short supply even in the 1930s. The home islands were vulnerable from the perspective of food security. They were heavily dependent on imports from the colonies, and therefore on uninterrupted shipping. This was ultimately a fatal miscalculation. Population expansion accompanying industrialization and modernization, while not markedly out of line with uh, similar phenomena experienced by other countries undergoing similar structural transformations, nevertheless stretched Japan's food supplies thin. While cultivated land area and yield increased, the pre-war availability of food left little or no margin above the nutritional needs of the population. So rationing and other measures implemented beginning in 1939 uh, quickly accelerated as the war uh, deepened and ensured that the supply of food to the population of the home islands, which had, as I said, only been sort of marginally above subsistence anyway, uh, stretched but didn't break until 1943, uh, at which point it definitely does. Uh, and that's after Midway, right? Because once shipments of food imports begin to fall prey to American submarine warfare, the rationing system and its accompanying regulations can do very little to fend off the absolute scarcity, right? You can't divide nothing. Uh, Japan's total shipping capacity peaked in October of 1942. After that, losses rapidly outpaced even the massively expanded production capacity of the empire. So, for example, in 1942, Japan only replaced 30% of the ship tonnage that it lost. The next year, losses doubled. So, even though expansion was increased, even though uh, production was, and uh, capacity was increased, Japan only built back about 40% of the tonnage sunk by Amer the Americans. Even when production doubled between 1943 and 1944, that was only enough to replace 80% of the previous year's losses. To put this another way, Japan lost 4,000 tons of ships in 1942, then more than 388,000 in 1943, and double that again in 1944 to American submarines alone. So that doesn't even take into surface warfare, mines, bombing raids, etc., which further crippled the Japanese merchant and military fleets and dismembered the empire. Very quickly then, the Japanese home islands ended up almost entirely dependent on supplies from China, Manchuria, Korea, and the home islands themselves. The irony of this outcome to a war which had been intended to make Japan self-sufficient should be painfully obvious. Of course, scarcity went beyond just food. David Earhart summed this up quite nicely. 
Substitute materials took the place of metals, rubber, and petroleum products that were particularly valuable to war production. The home front had to make do with replacement foodstuffs, leaving the most substantial provisions for the men at the front. Meeting the demand for staple crops meant reducing the production of meat, fish, soybeans, rice, alcohol, and sweets, which could rarely be found at any price from 1943 until the end of the war. From early 1942, all rationed rice was unpolished so that the nutrients in the husk were not lost. While unpolished, or brown rice, is more nutritional than polished white rice, modern Japanese had come to prefer the look, texture, and taste of white rice, a luxury most of their peasant ancestors seldom enjoyed. By 1944, even brown rice was becoming scarce, and in 1945 the population was threatened with starvation. The standard ration for civilians was maintained at about 330 grams of rice, or 1160 calories per day. By sub this was done by substituting imperial's, excuse me, inferior staple foods, and even this ration was reduced by 10% in July 1945, when the food rationing system went into failure. The real picture of wartime hunger is seen in the plummeting production of fruits and vegetables, which by 1945 had fallen to 57 and 70% respectively of their 1940 level, and the disappearance of edible fats and sugar from the diet. The situation was obviously hopeless, even to the most recalcitrant and blinded militarists, by the middle of 1945. By early 1944, daily calorie intake had fallen by a third, down from 2,200 calories in 1941 to just 1,400. Consumer prices had jumped about 400%. And worse, because of Japan's loss of naval superiority and its unrealistic ad hoc planning, territories under both direct and indirect Japanese control often fared even worse, as all human, material, and logistic resources remained, uh, that remained were concentrated on keeping the home islands afloat. The reduction of the symbolically and practically important rice ration, uh, reduction of 10%, for normal consumers was something of a coffin nail. Already, though, the rice ration was a polite fiction. It had been adulterated by potatoes and other cereals and grains. But the abandonment of even this last desperate pretense signaled the final failure of Japan's wartime food management effort and became a major factor in considering surrender. Even before that, in February 1945, uh, Konoe, the former prime minister at that point, had already advised the emperor that impending food shortages and accompanying deterioration of national living standards would lead to communist revolution, which would certainly adversely affect Japan's war effort. As David Earhart hinted, the story was pretty much the same for every other resource you can think of, including human resources. And when the Americans captured the island of Saipan in July 1944 and made it a staging base for high-flying B-29 superfortresses to firebomb Japan's major cities and factories, the war was essentially over. According to widely accepted estimates, the March 1945 firebombing of Tokyo killed about 78,000 people, injured another 44,000 or so, and left 1.5 million homeless. Uh, about 60% of the homes in uh, Tokyo were destroyed. Osaka lost, uh, similarly also lost about 6 out of 10 homes. Uh, where I used to live in Nagoya, that was about 9 out of 10. Um, and we haven't even gotten to the Battle of Okinawa, which resulted in 100,000 or more deaths. Or, of course, to the better known atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
Despite the obvious food shortages and the withering of Japanese national strength, the bombings that began in the summer of 1944 probably came as something of a surprise to many Japanese in the home islands. Until then, censorship and complicity had deceived the public into believing that Japan was winning the war, or at least not losing. The great victories won during the six months that Japan ran wild, as Admiral Yamamoto had put it, were reported and received in Japan with exhilaration and euphoria, and that mood was maintained through concerted media efforts, in other words, propaganda, long after Japan had really lost its Pacific War with the United States. Paul Varley summed this up nicely when he wrote, Although the Japanese government was pleased to report Japan's startlingly successful early victories, it concealed the defeats once they started coming. The government, for example, proclaimed a Japanese victory at Midway, even though it was not only a defeat, but indeed one of the most decisive setbacks in the history of naval warfare. With the media under its strict control, the government thus kept the Japanese public largely in the dark about the true course of the war after Midway. But when the systematic bombings of Japan began in late 1944, the truth gradually became clear to everyone. Jansen uh, pushes that timeline back even further, arguing that, quote, it was probably not until the great fire, fire raids laid waste to Japan's cities in the spring of 1945 that serious doubts about the outcome of the war became common. This, by the way, I should say parenthetically here, is similar to the story that's told about uh, Berlin uh, in, in 1945. Uh, but the Japanese government, like most, also took an active hand in suppressing dissent and dissidents during wartime. The feared Thought Police, uh, officially the Special Higher Police, uh, known as Tokko, monitored and cracked down on religious sects, Koreans, leftists, pacifists, and other troublemakers and purveyors of dangerous thought. The Thought Police were joined by the military police, the equally feared and repressive Kempeitai. In addition, the Imperial Rule Assistance Association, which we talked about in an earlier lecture, was deeply involved in the organization of everyday life in wartime Japan. Despite all this, and despite the costs of the war in China, or perhaps in part because of that, the economy was actually getting back on track in the 1930s, and for many Japanese this was a time of growth and relative economic prosperity. Between the Marco Polo Bridge incident in 1937 and Pearl Harbor in 1941, Japan's industrial output jumped by 15%. Much of that growth was concentrated in heavy and chemical industries. Between 1932 and 1940, the economy overall grew by over 5% a year. And that's not as high as the nearly 7% growth during the World War I economic boom, but it was far higher than the fitful 2% growth in the previous decade. The machinery industry provides a particularly good example of the type and amount of economic growth Japan experienced in the 1930s. After a decade of stagnant production in the, uh, in the industry in the 1920s, um, not to mention the long deflation, large numbers of business failures, etc., which characterized the decade and caused all that stagnation, production in the machine industry took off in the 1930s as Japan began to substitute domestic products for foreign imports. By the end of the decade, more than a million people were employed in machinery, and the value of production had increased about eightfold. Much of this growth was related to increased military spending, which went from about uh, a little bit under 15% of GDP in, 30, in 1937 to more than 20% by 1940. Uh, it was over half of GDP by 1942. This is all not to mention that uh, military spending already accounted for about three-fourths of the annual budget in 1938. These numbers are merely meant to illustrate that the rapid expansion of the economy uh, in wartime 
may have had effects on the lives of individuals and families in the 1930s that were largely positive if you were a Japanese uh, a citizen subject living in the home islands in Japan. And as Andrew Gordon pointed out, even under an increasingly oppressive censorship and moral policing regime, cultural life remained rather upbeat and lively, and life was relatively good. Dance halls weren't closed down until November 1940. Rice rations only began on Christmas Day of that year. Ho, ho, ho. This meant that the majority of Japanese had little reason to question media reports of Japanese victories and the military and civilian leadership that had brought Japan uh, economic recovery and what appeared to be a path to a stable autarkic future. So in this sense, the 1940s came as a little bit of a cruel shock. Um, and this is uh, a place where scholars, I should say, disagree a little bit about the timing of this, but the trajectory uh, is, is fairly uh, well established and agreed upon. If you're interested in reading a little bit of a, a dissenting view, uh, Benjamin Uchiyama's book, uh, Carnival War, is, is a good new, new book on the subject. Anyway, even if people were initially willing to chalk up their plummeting living standards to necessary sacrifices made in a time of emergency, as it was called, the failures of Japan's planned economy and then its military meant that the downward trajectory became exponentially steeper as the war <clears throat> moved on. Inflation became hyperinflation. Wages and commodities were strictly controlled. New taxes were levied at the same time that the government promoted savings and war bonds to fund military expansion. Jazz was banned. So was baseball. Love scenes were censored from movies. Women's permanence were verboten. And the landscape was drained of color as soberly appropriate olive drabs and grays took over. Industries of all types and sizes were restructured for military production. Black markets began to appear. Young men began to disappear. As the situation worsened, perhaps as many as four million Koreans were drafted as laborers in mining and construction. Taiwanese men were volunteered into military support corps. Thousands of women from across Asia were bought, hired, and coerced into de facto sexual slavery. Forced labor and other hardships were increasingly shared by Japanese as time passed. By the middle of 1943, only children and married women were exempted from compulsory service labor in factories or fields. And I should pause here for a moment to say, as many of you are aware, the issue of sexual slavery uh, in relation to the Japanese military in World War II is also a uh, very hot, controversial topic, uh, if you would like to talk about that with me sometime. In the first years of the war, uh, and at least publicly, intellectuals and artists supported the war in droves and with enthusiasm. There was uh, an infamous 1942 university conference at Kyoto University on overcoming modernity, by which they went, meant essentially Western civilization, which is an often cited example of this. Um, but there was also this uh, a, a poem uh, published in a major national newspaper right after Pearl Harbor, which eloquently distilled the essence of much of the sort of anti-Western propaganda uh, that was going around at the, at the time and was actively promoted by government cultural policies. It went, we are standing for justice and life while they are standing for profits. We are defending justice while they are attacking for profits. They raise their heads in arrogance while we are constructing the great East Asia family. It's a nice way to transition to the other major topic of this lecture, which is the so-called Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. 
The same July 2nd, 1941 Imperial Conference, which had declared Japan's intention to not shrink from war with the U.S. and Great Britain, also formally agreed to the establishment of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, which was called, which was a basically this idea for an economic and military geopolitical bloc under Japanese hegemony. Planning for this Asian bloc, in other words, Asia for the Asians, began in earnest in 1942, and a supervisory ministry was set up in November of 1943. The rhetoric of co-prosperity paid lip service to Asian solidarity, but it was solidarity under Japan, and from which Japan would benefit most. Japan occupied areas like Indochina and the East Indies, and ruled directly while directing nominally independent governments in Burma and the Philippines, and maintaining a more precarious alliance with Thailand. Tellingly, representatives of Burma, Thailand, the Philippines, Manchukuo, and the puppet Chinese regime of Wang Jingwei attended a conference commemorating the sphere's establishment in 1943, while those of other regions and states like Indochina, Indonesia, Korea, and Taiwan did not. And the reason is, the former were independent and therefore had their own representation. The latter were not. The meeting uh, was a photo op and a propaganda tool marked mostly by praise for the ideals of Pan-Asianism and denunciation of Western imperialism. It was not marked by actionable plans to develop so-called Greater East Asia as an integrated political and economic region. In principle, though, as Janice Mimura has pointed out, the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere served as a complex ideological matrix that brought together various strands of Japanese technocratic and right-wing thinking. It fused managerial concepts of the multilateral business structure with geopolitical ideas of an organic state that requires living space, and Japanese pan-Asianist visions of an Asian liberation into a fascist vision of empire. These strands of thought mutually reinforced each other in their common vision of a hierarchical, organic, functionalist community. It was a product of the collaboration of the military, pan-Asianists, and ultranationalists, as well as technically-minded professionals, including economic and regional planners, geographers, and engineers. In practice, however, as Andrew Gordon put it, local Japanese military commanders dictated policy. They suppressed independence movements directed at the Japanese themselves, while nurturing anti-Western independence fighters who pledged allegiance to Japan. Under chauvinistic, brutal military officers with no experience as civil administrators, Japanese rule in the co-prosperity sphere was characterized more by cruelty and exploitation than it was by adherence to the high ideals of solidarity purported to underpin Japan's sacred mission. The incredible victories for Japan at the outset of the Pacific War had stretched military and material resources quite thin, but also human resources. So Tokyo was short of trained colonial administrators and had no plans ready for governance of the new empire. One Japanese official likened Japan's recent acquisition of the vast resources of Southeast Asia to a cat being given a whale. Many scholars point out that in a few places the Japanese found competent, principled nationalist leaders to act as their local pro uh, proxies, but this was the exception rather than the rule. As so often happens, in most cases, expediency, greed, fear, and sheer stupidity won the day, and lost the war. <clears throat> Despite the uh, image that you see here, Japanese imperialism had merely replaced Western imperialism. Uh, this is actually an image from a textbook for students in the co-prosperity sphere. 
This is a, a, an elementary uh, Japanese language primer uh, for students learning Japanese language. Uh, and you can see the unhappy figures of Roosevelt and Churchill uh, <clears throat> and the happy solidarity of all the Asians as uh, and their sort of gratitude toward Japan as Japan kicks the bad white guys out. Uh, in practice, it didn't quite work this way. The nations of the co-prosperity sphere were made to adopt the Japanese calendar, money, flag, language, modes of thought and customs, and even to work on Tokyo Standard Time. Every public meeting began with a bow to the emperor. Ignorance and disdain of local culture was as much a hallmark of Japanese rule as it had been of previous colonial masters, sowing fast-growing seeds of resentment and ill will. J.G. Kager and R.H.P. Mason put it quite nicely. The Japanese proved more successful in seizing territory from colonial powers than in transforming the rhetoric of their newly announced Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere into a real partnership with the people of those lands. Patterns of organization developed in Japan, such as neighborhood associations for local control, were reinforced, excuse me, were enforced in occupied territories. Established Japanese needs received priority, so that co-prosperity meant that oil, rubber, tin, nickel, bauxite, etc. were channeled from Southeast Asia to Japan, while the moral cause proclaimed in Japan took little note of local aspirations until Japan's own position grew desperate. In short, while some had originally welcomed the Japanese as the liberators they claimed to be, that illusion was quickly shattered. In this sense, the fate of the co-prosperity sphere mirrored that of the Japanese Empire as a whole during the Pacific War. Initial success, hamstrung by an appalling lack of realistic planning for their aftermath, leading then the House of Cards to collapse under the weight of reality. Um, and of course, as an American, I might know a thing or two about this. Uh, while the horrors and hardships inflicted by Japanese rule in the co-prosperity sphere were truly reprehensible, um, as they had in Korea, for example, they did have a little bit of a mixed legacy, which is worth pointing out. On the one hand, memories of harsh treatment and exploitation created hostility to post-war Japanese economic imperialism and to any signs of remilitarization, and that has lasted to the present. On the other hand, post-war Southeast Asian leaders, as well as historians, have concluded that the occupation changed the politics of the area irrevocably, as Elise Tipton wrote. In a way, Japan's own rise and fall was the second and final chapter of the undoing of 19th century style imperialism, which Japan had started with its own victory over Russia in 1905. As Tipton continued, Japan's own collapse exposed colonial omnipotence uh, of both white and non-white as a myth. Southeast Asians were left with the confidence that they would never again submit to foreign rule, and with the means to ensure that they never would. Um, and I guess it's Kristen Ziomek's new book, which is, uh, sort of touches on this in a very interesting way. If December 7th, 1941, uh, the date of the attack of Pearl Harbor, or at least the date in Hawaii, uh, lives in infamy in the United States, August 7th and 10th, 1945, surely live in greater infamy in world history. I've chosen not to end this lecture with the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Instead, they'll be the beginnings of the next lecture. On the one hand, the nuclear holocausts of 1945 brought the war to its already inevitable end. On the other, they were foundational for a new era. By attaching the bombs and their use to the post-war, the subject of the next lecture, um, seeing continuity between Fat Man, Little Boy, and post-war Japan, Fat Man and Little Boy being the two bombs, uh, I hope to shed a sort of different light on the path of Japan's recovery. 
Um, and before we go uh, and then start back up with uh, the atomic bombings next time, uh, of course, we need to do a quick summary here. Uh, we covered these two major topics, in other words, Japan's war with the U.S., the so-called Pacific War, which began with the assault on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, and also the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. In addition to illuminating the gap between the rhetoric and realities of the sphere, I tried to lay out some of the events that led up to the decision to go to war and the consequences Japan suffered as a result. Uh, I emphasized that among the most important factors leading to war, uh, there was inertia, lack of courage, and an unrealistic and ignorant worldview. For example, uh, Konoe Fumimoto was never strong enough when necessary, Tojo Hideki was too much the loyal soldier. The army and navy saw each other as rivals and failed to communicate, let alone cooperate, at critical junctures. This same lack of communication, lack of planning, and lack of hard-nosed, well-informed realism continued to dog Japan as it plunged into the war, leading to ultimately fatal military and logistical setbacks, harsh and counterproductive administration of Asians who were supposed to be allies and friends, and the extraordinary annihilation of the great cities of the home islands. From the firebombing of Tokyo, which was perhaps the single greatest day of destruction and death visited on a civilian population center, to the repeated bombings of Nagoya, Osaka, and other industrial hubs, and of course the world's first nuclear weapons used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, an already starved and overworked and beaten and exhausted Japan was reduced to rubble and ash. Of necessity, though, I have to point out here that this is a, a, a limited view of the war. Right? So I didn't spend, for example, enough time on the situation of women on the home front, the situation of women in the military brothels. Uh, in other words, I didn't navigate the sort of complexities of gender in wartime. Um, I also didn't talk about the victories and defeats that won and lost the war, uh, nor did I discuss China much at all, despite the fact that the war there lumbered on as a sort of forever war quagmire. I didn't talk about propaganda. I didn't go into depth about the delicate balancing act uh, performed by Thailand as the last semi-independent country in East and Southeast Asia. Um, and I didn't, I only hinted at uh, the, the fall of Singapore by bicycle uh, as a harbinger of the end of the British Empire, despite victory over the Nazis. Instead, I just tried to create a foundation here for you to uh, figure out where your interests lie and to then explore those issues in the future as your intellectual curiosity leads you. Uh, and I hope that some of you will think about uh, including one or more of those topics in a thesis.